Hello, and welcome to The Delicious Truth with Gloria Cotton. I'm Gloria. During this podcast, we're going to cover a variety of topics that are impacting our everyday lives. We'll look at four things for each topic. One, the absolute empirical truth. That's all about the facts and data. Then we'll look at the personal experiential truth. And that's about how those facts and others do and don't show up in people's lives and their experience of them. Next, the consequential, impactful truth. The difference this makes in people's lives. And finally, you'll hear about resources and solutions you can use to empower yourself and others. I am so excited today because my guest is Howard Ross. Okay, I'm going to tell y'all something that you can find on the internet about him, and then I'm going to tell you why I love the man, okay? So he is an activist. He's an author. He's got more books than I can tell you about. The new episode or the new um, updated version of Everyday Bias, Identifying and, and Navigating Unconscious Judgments in Our Daily Lives, has just come out. So you might want to, I suggest, look, I have the old copy. I'm getting ready to get the new one, okay? Um, and he's written a whole bunch of other books. Just go in there, peruse whatever speaks to your mind, your heart, your soul, whatever. You get it. You're not going to go wrong. I tell you, you're going to need to take a moment to breathe as you're reading because it's just chug full with too much stuff. It's just delicious. <laughs> now, let me tell you why I love this. Oh, and he's got a new business now. It's uh, Udarta Consulting. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to know more about that. But let me tell you by why I love Howard Ross. The man is a gentle man. He is a man who is not afraid to show not only humility, but gentleness, care, concern, empathy. People don't have a clue what empathy is. This man lives it. Um, And for all of the things that are going on in his life, He presents himself with humor, humility, always open for learning. Yeah, I love him, okay? And he earns that love over and and respect over and over again. So, I mean, how delighted am I to have him on the delicious Truth Howard? Welcome, darling. Oh, sister, thank you so much. I, that, that was such a beautiful introduction. My father would have loved it. My mother would have even believed it all. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. It was so, it's so good to be with you. I wish we could give each other a hug, but unfortunately, I, we're I stuck know. in this weird state that we're in. I know. So today, the topic of this episode is the relationship between bias and systemic racism. First, let's, let's talk about why that topic why that was important for you to address during this episode? Well, I think, you know, we, we, we're at one of these moments, you know, we, we come to these moments at different times in our society's history. We know that there are certain times when the issues of race sort of rear their head again and enough so that everybody pays attention. Now, I say that knowing full well that they're there all the time and for, mm-hmm. you know, for especially for African-Americans, but also for other um, black, indigenous people of color in our country. Um, you know, I, I, it, it struck me when uh, all of the, um, you know, the unrest uh, rose after George Floyd was killed. And of course, before that, Breonna Taylor, before that, Ahmaud Arbery, and we could go back, you know, into sadly, and even after we have the, you know, the, the uh, 
um, the, the Blake uh, attack and all these kinds mm-hmm. of things, you know, and, and, and it, it struck me, you know, I was talking to some folks about this uh, glow and, and, and um, when these things happen, I think, well, you know, they come up to the surface when these events happen and even people who care about it, I'm not talking about, you know, extreme white supremacists or something. I'm talking about the everyday person who sees these white folks and people of color who see these things happen. Um, you know, I think our tendency as white folks a lot of times is to see these terrible incidents happen and say, when are these incidents going to stop happening? And I think that it, it, inherently in that, it's a very different sense than the way it lives for most African-Americans I know, which is that this is a day-to-day experience um, that is a cumulative experience that happens in, in so many different ways. I mean, not everybody is murdered so so obviously as George Floyd. Not everybody dies. Some people are just shoved by police or they're harassed by police or they're stopped by police or they're or the, the, the parent who has to wake up in the morning and, and know that their child is leaving that morning and has to worry about them all day long until they come home at night. And, and I think that that's the difference between understanding racial incidents versus systemic racism. And so mm-hmm. just it occurred to me that that would be a good conversation for us to have. Oh, I love what you just said. The difference between understanding or knowing about, I'm I'm paraphrasing, uh, Mm -hmm. racial incidents. And here's what I say after that, as opposed to living a racial life. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of putting it. And 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 the lives we live in this culture have given us very different racial frames. So mm-hmm. so when I say this, I mean as you know, sometimes people look at this work and say you're talking about hating white people. Well, you know, obviously I don't hate white people. I mean, you don't look at me. I mean, it's just a ludicrous proposition. I've got four white sons. I've got white grandchildren. Um, you know, actually some white and some mixed race. But but the um, but my point is, it, 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 you know, I'm not talk, talking about anything I hate. It. it doesn't mean that we're bad people. It just means we've been raised and a culture that gives us a particular frame of reference. And, and the more we can um, be responsible for understanding that in ourselves and seeing how it affects us, uh, the, the more consciously we can live our lives in a way that really fulfills the American dream. Absolutely. And, and that's, I think, one point that people need to know, that these acts impact not just the person they're directed at and not just the race of the person or the gender identity of the person, these hateful acts, just like loving acts, affect everybody. Loving acts affect everybody. You know, if you see most people, if they hear the laughter of a baby, it brings a smile or at least calming to most people. And so if you, if you see an ugly act or hear some violence, that affects us too. And I want people I wish people would know that because that might incentivize some people who don't care about me because I have this beautiful Bacon Brown skin right here. Some well, people- you know, I, I, I tell you, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I just want to pick up on that point because you're making a really important point that this goes beyond the individual. I think that, you know, what occurred to me as you were saying that, I hadn't thought about this before, but it really occurred to me as you were saying that, I think everybody who's with us today, everybody who's listening to us could could um, can remember what it was like on um you know 912 and 913 and 914 and 915 the days after the 911 attack and and yes. the fear the fear that we all had in our system that um that this was going to happen in our communities it wasn't just going to be the world trade centers and the pentagon it was going to be in the in a in a county fair or in a and and we know that a lot of people still carry that fear about islamic terrorism yes. um because because of that event and and so you know but but people don't understand that when a george floyd is so uh, so um 
visibly murdered the way he was, that when an Ahmed Arbery is so visibly murdered the way he was, mm-hmm. that when Breonna mm-hmm. Taylor is shot down the way she was, that when mm-hmm. Tamir Rice is killed the way he was, and, and Michael Brown, and you know, all of all of the above and, and before, that that that's the same fear that 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 African Americans feel in their system. Is this, I, I remember I remember right after Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, um, one of our one of our colleagues who's an African American woman roughly my age was staying at our house for a couple of days. She was in town, was staying at our house for a couple of days. And the two of us were watching the report and 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 it struck me and I said something to her. I said, you know, as angry as I am about this, as an upset about as I mean about this, it will never hit me the same way as you do. Cause she had two grandsons who were exactly the same age as Michael Brown. Mm-hmm. And so for her, this could be her babies. Mm-hmm. And maybe tomorrow it will be. And mm-hmm. you know, that that's the mindset. Whereas for me, it was like really awful that this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter how committed I am, no matter how much I care and how much I commit my time to activism or the work that I do or any of that stuff, I'm always very aware that's very different than a lived experience. I could turn around and walk away from it if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh. And you can't. Right. Because it's with me all the time. That's right. So bias, how would you define it? How do you, what, what do you have to say about bias? The way, the way I often, I often, um, put it is this. I mean, you know, we all know that we have choices. Uh, You know, we we like one thing versus another. And and on a conscious level, we all know that that's true. We like chocolate versus vanilla. We like, you know, we like to ride a bike rather than running. We, you know, we have lots of choices in our life. And, 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 um, and, uh, you know, so, so bias is, is a function of living where we, we are inclined to like one thing versus another. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong with bias in that sense. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's really valuable. It's really, it's really helpful to know I already know that I don't like this. So why do I have to taste it 12 times to, to remind myself every time that I don't like it? So I, and so I already know I've made that determination. And the brain is kind of designed this way. It's designed for us to learn certain things to make life easier and also to keep us safe. So, yes. so for example, you, you walk across the wood floor in your home. And um, you don't have to check each step to be sure that the floor can support you because you've learned over time the floors support you overwhelmingly enough of the times that you can, you can forget about that. that now, you, it still could happen that you could fall through a hole in the floor, but, but mm-hmm. because it's so unlikely to happen, you don't, you don't bother to do it. So, so the brain is designed for us to learn from our past, learn from the things we've heard to help us navigate into the future. And one of the key areas of that, key aspects and purposes for that is to keep us safe. It's to help yes. us survive in life. Here's yes. safe, here's not safe, here's friendly, here's not friendly. And we apply this to people that can be helpful too. Like if I'm coming up to you with my, you know, let's say this was a knife in my hand and I was holding a knife up like this and coming up to you, you wouldn't look up and say, gee, Howard, what's that in your hand and what are you going to do with it? You know, you would find a way you prepare yourself to protect because a person coming to you like this is a knife. There's enough chance that they're trying to hurt you that yeah. you should kick into that. And so seeing that and reacting to it early is really helpful. Now, this is where it gets problematic. Because of all the messaging we get, because of the way we collect data, or because of the way our minds collect data, we collect data about people based on generalities. So if we see, for example, a lot of stereotypes around African-American men that characterize them as dangerous, that characterize them as threatening, as uh, violent, as rapists, as whatever, um, and we find ourselves then in a circumstance with an African-American man, what our brain says is, careful, potential danger. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, and if I'm in a position of power and authority, as in, as in the case of a police officer sometimes, and again, I want to be really clear, I'm not demonizing police officers. I've worked with a lot of police officers. I have tremendous respect and, and appreciation for what they have to do and for the biases, by the way, that they deal with projected mm-hmm. in them. So, mm-hmm. so I'm not universalizing this. I'm talking about the, the kind of cases where people, um, where this happens. Then if that police officer has those internalized biases that says that's a dangerous person because they look like the dangerous people I've been shown in the past, there might be that much easier to be um, controlling, um, to be uh, physically uh, aggressive, um, or to pull a trigger, or in the case of George Floyd, to to hold them under a knee, uh, under the, their neck under a knee. Um, so and then, of course, of, so of course, this happens in every aspect of life as well. It, it, what do we need to do so that we are not acting on those triggers? Um, now, just to be clear, uh, and if you listening listening faithfully or not, you might have known already that I was married to a Chicago police officer for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And I've got FBI and other uh, law enforcement officers from government through local and city uh, in my family. So I love the popo. So I'm not talking about that. Right. My ex-husband was shot in the back when, before I met him uh, in a restaurant with his partner. He's, his back was facing the door. His partner's back uh, his partner was facing the door. He did not see in time, and they were both in uniform. They were working. Mm-hmm. Somebody came through the door of the restaurant, shot and killed his partner, and shot my husband in the back. Uh, he was paralyzed. My ex-husband. He was paralyzed for a bit, uh, and then the bullet, which lodged next to his spine, worked its way out. Wow. When the the 25 years that he and I were married, he never sat with his back to the door. I always. It's a great example. He he explained why. But he took precautions not to have that trauma repeated. Not something he heard about. Something he Mm -hmm. lived through, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. But he wasn't having his gun out shooting anybody who came through the door of restaurants where we were. And I think that's what it is. I understand the triggers and the cautions and I, I, yes, that's the human part, but what do we do so that we are not victims ourselves and we do not victimize others because of our biases? Well, I I think there are a couple of things. I think, um, you know, on a personal level, um, there are things that we're learning that we can do. And it starts by, first of all, acknowledging that um, that we all have bias. That this is a fundamental human characteristic. Every human being has it. Um, we we couldn't exist without it. It's it's protective in many cases, as I said before, as as well as it is potentially dangerous. And so this notion of people saying, "Well, I don't have any biases," it's just it, it's just false. Right. I'm, I'm not saying right. I'm not saying they're bad people for saying that. They're just inaccurate. It's it's like saying I don't breathe. You know, um, we right. can't live with bias. We can't live without bias any more than we can live without breathing. Because you know, on a simple level, you know, I, I walk out of my my apartment and I go to cross the street. If I'm if I'm not aware that cars can kill you, you know, I'll step in front of this car coming and I'll be dead. You know, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I learned that, that learned to be careful around cars. You know, and this is the way the brain learns and it shows up in terms of bias. Now, um, so the one thing is I'm acknowledging that. The second is then um, really beginning to practice to develop awareness to learn how I watch myself making decisions, and that's the remarkable capacity that the human brain has. This the prefrontal cortex of our brain has this remarkable capacity for metacognition. So I can begin to watch myself and have thoughts 
gee, what made me think about that? Why did I have that reaction? Um, what actually happened there versus what I was afraid of? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, and, and we can begin to, to do that in that way. Now, we know that there are other things. For example, we know that when you have, um, when you're exposed to people or even images of people um, who are from particular groups that are positive images, it can, it can you know, balance out some of the negative stereotypes. For example, this is why Black History Month is helpful, even though people may not know, understand this. It's like when you keep seeing all these images, positive images of African-Americans, it bounces out. It balances out, excuse me, some of the, those negative stereotypes. So, mm-hmm. so, so that's all happening. And, and there are other particular things. But I think that what I'd love to do is, is to shift a little bit more um, to understanding that unless we change the system that we're a part of, um, we're going to continue to get those references that judge the way we, we um, make these decisions. And that's why I think that the understanding of the relationship with systemic, bias, with systemic racism in this particular case, or it could be systemic sexism or anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think talking about race might make more sense because we can get deeper into it rather than a broader conversation about so lots of different is, things. What is systemic racism? First of all, well, sure. what is well, culture is formed. We know culture is formed from experience. So there are lots of things that we do right now that we know have been formed from experience. We learned uh, as as cultural beings, social animals, that it makes more sense for people to wear clothing in society than to run around naked. You know, we learned that it's healthier for people to have toilets and to pee and, and do their thing in the street. You know, we learn we learn all these things and culture evolves over time. And so the things that have happened in the past give us guidance for the things that happen in the future. And um, and when we look at um, the history of the United States, and we look back at you know, 401 years, 1619, when the first African-Americans were brought to this, this um, continent, um, we know that there's a pattern of behavior that, that has resulted in what Brian Stevenson, the great civil rights lawyer, calls a narrative of racial, racial difference. I mean, and that started, that started with 246 years of chattel slavery in this society, that legally said that black people were property and could be traded mm-hmm. like property, traded like cattle. We know mm-hmm. that after that, there were 99 years of legal segregation where, where black people were told in the society that they were less than white and white people were told that black people were less than white people. So that's right. 345 years. That's 17 generations. And, and people really need to let that sink in. 17 generations in which encoded by law in this culture. Encoded by law in this culture, black people were less than white people. And um, and then, of course, we, we could talk about the more subtle things that have happened since that time, because only a fool thinks that in 1964, when the civil rights law was passed, passed everything, everything was fine after that, because we know that we've seen all the different things we're talking about. Now, we were all taught a very different history than that. One of the, the great example of this was when the Tulsa controversy came up a couple of, you know, a couple of months ago or whenever it was when President Trump was going to speak in Tulsa. Less than 30 percent of the American people even knew about the Tulsa massacre. Now, yes. Gloria, you and I know that that was just one of numerous cases of times where African-American communities started to get built up and then were crushed um, right. and sometimes exterminated by by the surrounding white communities. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg to all of the different aspects of of racism that have occurred within our society. So what happens is we've got this narrative and the narrative um, drives how we create systems and structures in our culture. So because, mm-hmm. because the narrative has white people be at the top and 
other groups of, of, of black indigenous and people of color be at the bottom. And by the way, we didn't even talk about the fact that our very existence on this continent is built on the genocide that was committed against Native American people. So okay. um, that's a whole that's a whole other piece. So then what happens is as we get this mindset that, OK, we're better. So we have the right to make decisions, make choices and to set up policy and structure, because, of course, people in power do that. And and up until fairly recent in our history, the people in power were almost exclusively white. So we create the school systems. We create the legal system. We create, you know, all of the various systems that, that are in. And those systems, not surprisingly, tend to benefit the people who create them and Correct. to the detriment of the people who don't. And, and, and in some cases, this is not even conscious. In some cases, it's just because if I'm passing laws, I'm far more likely to pass a law that I can relate to the impact of because the people around me tell me it impacts them in a particular way, then I, that I could relate to the impact on some people who I don't have a lot of interaction with. So it's far more likely that white people will create a law that meets the needs of white people, not because we're bad, but because we're oriented towards our own kind of self-concerns, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and those laws, for example, you know, um, uh, FHA loans that were limited to, uh, you know, uh, redlining in housing, certain segregated districts that people could live in, access to quality health care, access to education, policing systems, you know, all of these things are built around that particular model. And of because, course, because the system was written to perpetuate the health in every way of the people who wrote it, who designed it, who created those laws. Well, yes, yes. Sometimes, sometimes not even consciously. So, if, if, for example, I'm in a position of authority, and I say, "Well, you know, all I have to do is go across the street and do such and such," but but you have that same that same opportunity. You say, "But if I go across the street, somebody may go after me." Then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. you know, you mm -hmm. have a different experience than I do mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. because being white in this society, we know, is safer. Um, we know that that we have more access to money. We have more access to power, and, and all of these things. And so, and so, sometimes it's not that people created them with an intention to perpetuate. It's just the system is designed. The system basically, most systems, by the way, produce self perpetuation. It's, yes. it's the nature of systems to want to perpetuate themselves. But now, the impact of that um, shows up. So, the average black family has one seventh to one tenth the acquired wealth of the average white family. We know it shows up in terms of health disparities. We know that two and a half times as many unarmed unarmed black people are killed by the police as white people. And, you know, we could go on and on. Education disparities, you know, who, um, now we see health Everything. disparities in terms of COVID. And so what ends up happening then is that people then look at those disparities, let's use education example, say, well, you know, a, a far greater, a far smaller percentage of black people graduate from colleges. People now look at it and say, you see black people are Aren't as intelligent. So we forget that the system created that result. And instead, we use that result to justify the system itself. And that right. justifies the narrative of racial difference. And so that's right. how the system, that's how the system perpetuates itself. So I say, I, because people are talking about the Constitution now, and I'm not mad about that. But my favorite part of the, because I'm a bottom line girl, mm -hmm. my favorite part of the Constitution is the preamble. I've mm -hmm. mentioned this before, even on these, on these podcasts. 52 words that are a wonderful template. Pursuit of happiness, equal this, opportunities for that. It is some good stuff. I don't but know, you know how people read it, but yeah. who was it written by? It was written by middle-aged, white men who were Christian, but Protestant, not mm -hmm. just Christian. 
Protestant Christians who said they're straight. It was not written for people older or younger. And, and so I want I just I, I, I want people to think about who the system uh, supports. It is not for people that are too old or too young. It is not for people who don't self-identify as men. It is a what all this gender identity crap. You got these LGBT and trans. What in the world is that? You are straight up man or you are nothing. For one group of Christians, I remember as a child, my parents discussing President Kennedy being the president and saying disparagingly, he's Catholic. And my question of, but isn't that Christian? But see, he was the wrong kind of Christian. Um, and then middle-aged white women here. And then what do you mean you're LGBTQ? I ain't, no, it's just for people who say they're straight. It wasn't written for anybody else. And those are the people that this system creates problems for while they're trying to create the goodness for all those people who are men, white, middle-aged, uh, Protestant, and say they're straight. Well, you know, and, and there's something else about the preamble to the Constitution, Gloria, that, that you didn't mention, but it's really, it's really important for us to understand right now kind of the conversation yeah. we're having in society, and that is the first line of the conversation of the, of the uh, preamble says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, men are created equal. Now, we know it was men, but the word all there is important because put that in the context of people saying all lives matter. In the history of the United States, the word all doesn't mean including black people. All. It doesn't mean From all. The first, it doesn't mean all. It means all white people. So a lot of us, um, you know, miss that sometimes. And I think a lot of white folks, particularly people who, who, who challenge this, you know, black lives matter and say all lives matter, um, uh, miss the fact that the word all doesn't have the same meaning to black folks right. in our society as it does right. to white folks. Because historically, or at the end of the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, when we say liberty and justice for all, it hasn't until recent times legally meant all. And so right. and so the word all has a particular meaning in American history that's that's secured in our most cherished documents. And, um, and that impacts the way we see um, the way it's used today. Delicious. See, we need to break it down. I think that we cannot dismantle, we can't address dismantle uh, piece by piece and then replace piece by piece this system unless we understand why it was created, who perpetuates it and how. Because I think we all have a part in it. We all have a part in it because we accept that is our norm. Um, you know, it's what we're accustomed to. And unconsciously or consciously, we play a role and we got to stop that. That's a that's a disease right there. Well, you know, and, and, and the problem is, of course, that the system exists and continues to exist because it serves people. Yes. It serves a lot of people. Absolutely. And um, and um, and, you know, people don't understand that sometimes that that. You know, it's not just by chance that it continues to exist. It continues to exist because it's a service to people. And so when people talk about white privilege, for example, which mm -hmm. again, which again, I want to be really clear. Um, and I think and I think to be fair, some of the some of the folks in the kind of work we do when we're doing diversity inclusion work use this term inappropriately. Excuse me. Yes. I need to readjust yes. myself. Use this term inappropriately as a personal attack. You are demonstrating privilege and you are demonstrating privilege. And that sometimes mm -hmm. confuses the issue because mm -hmm. privilege is more than an individual thing. 
It's it's a structure that we grow up in, that we have certain certain people have certain opportunities that other people don't have. You know, I have four sons I mentioned earlier. Um, the youngest is 26. You know, they've all learned to drive. I never even had to think when I was teaching them to drive to teach them how do you stay alive when a police officer stops you? Whereas right. virtually every African-American parent that I know of children at age has that conversation. In fact, mm-hmm. the NAACP even produced a booklet called Driving While Black to help parents have that conversation with their children. Um, you know, we look at people like, oh, you know, I'll go there, use Donald Trump Jr., you know, who was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. You know, this guy who apparently didn't, didn't do anything meaningful in his life except inherit <laughs> some money from his father and be given a, given a position from his father. Well, he doesn't want that system to go away because if he does, if the system does go away, he'll have to be actually accountable for what he produces. If, if we truly had a meritocracy, Donald Trump Jr. wouldn't be in the position he's in, going around acting like he's all that, because he hasn't accomplished anything for himself in his life. Um, and you. so, and, and argue, you could say the same thing about the president who inherited $400 million from his, um, from his father. So the point is, um, you know, these privileges... Um, are things that people enjoy having, they like to have. And and if we were to confront um, the actual truth about how much in society has been given to certain people and denied to other people, um, then we would have to look at ourselves and say, wow, um, maybe I'm not as, you know, as all that as I think I am. And that's, and that's something that the ego structure just doesn't want to do. So you, you mentioned that $400,000 that our president would- 400 million. 400 million. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Inherited. And I'm just thinking back something I saw the other day, $358 million. His daughter and son-in-law have, I'm going to say, because of the work that they have done in the name of the president, they have made uh, deals with different countries, particularly China. uh, And it has earned them $358 million which I'm understanding why it is so beneficial for him to be the president. This is more money than he has ever made in his life. Well, ever yeah, I mean, I, and I, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too far down this tunnel because we could, we get sidetracked to a whole other conversation, but clearly but, there's but, been but, a lot of, but, but clearly there's been a lot of shenanigans going on there that, uh, that will probably not come out until after this term is over. So it's not separate, but it's not no, separate. That's, because that's true. There right. is the acceptance by people that he should have that and nothing's wrong with how he's getting it just because he's white. And I dare say if some person of color, if a Brown or a black person, um, if you're, you're Jewish, if a Jew had done that, they would, they would have a fit over it because nobody's supposed to do it unless you're Protestant the right kind of Protestant, a man, white, uh, of middle-aged, and say you're straight. That, that is who the system was written by, and that's who it benefits, and that's who keeps it in place with the help of the rest of us. So what in the world can we do about it? What can we do about well, it? Well, I think, I think that, you know, I mean, I feel, um, you know, I feel uh, actually even in the midst of how scary things are right now, I feel encouraged. Um, uh, at, at some part of me feels encouraged. I mean, it's a boat band. I think, you know, the Chinese symbol for um, crisis is a combination of two symbols, one's danger and the other opportunity. Yeah. And I think this is yeah. that, that's exactly where we are right now. You know, the obvious danger is what's going to happen in this election. Um, 
you know, I mean, if the polls play themselves out, I think that, you know, Trump will be a one-term president. We'll have to start rebuilding our society again into the kind of society that's more fitting with the American dream. Um, but I don't think that's a, I don't think it's a sure thing that this will be a fair election because of all the attempts at voter suppression. And I don't think it, and we know for a fact, because he said so, that it's not a sure thing that he will, he will peacefully exit the office, even if he gets beaten. So, so that, so that's where the, all the fear is not to mention, you know, the rise of white supremacy and, you know, these, these latest attacks on, on diversity work, which is just an extension of the rise of white supremacy. Um, all of this stuff that's, that's, um, that's very frightening. But on the other hand, um, like, like John Lewis said before he passed, and and I was just, you know, on, on a, on the phone a couple days ago with, with our dear sister and colleague, Dr. Janetta Cole, who's Mm -hmm. been a dear friend, dear friend and mentor of mine for more than 15 years. And she was saying the same thing. She says she's also encouraged because these young people today are, they're not going to tolerate it. You know I mean? We, we challenged it in the sixties, um, but we were still coming out of a system even then in the 60s that that we had all grown up in. But but young people today have grown up in much more, much more awake and aware of this stuff than we ever were. We were still trying to learn about it. They've grown up in these conversations mm-hmm. and um, and they don't have patience and tolerance for this. And And they're also confronting the fact that that this planet is is potentially dying right in front of us, or at least dying for human life right in front of us, that we're not managing the environment. And we're seeing this in all the storms that are out there. Um, they're seeing for the first time, maybe in American history, that um, that their lives are likely not as not as likely to be as successful and as um, abundant as their parents' lives. Um, they're looking at a future um, based on a lot of stuff that we screwed up. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm really encouraged by how smart they are, how strong they are. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to teach people that we still have to have patience at times. And, and that can sometimes be frustrating in some of these conversations because, because, you know, when you, when you've lived a certain amount of life, you realize that it's, it's almost impossible to go from A to Z at one moment. You got to You got to get the small wins and keep moving. I remember I was, I was trained by Alinsky, by Saul Alinsky. And, um, and he used to say, never forget, you were trying to move the needle as much as we can, you know? Um, but, um, but I do think that, um, that, uh, we've got, uh, people in this country who will not just be sheep and will not just mm-hmm. say, oh, well, mm-hmm. um, we're moving towards totalitarianism or, oh, well, we're moving towards, you know, white supremacy becoming the law of the land again. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and so, and so I think that's really encouraging. And I think we have to continue to do that. We have to continue to press, um, we have to continue to press people to to do the right thing, and um, we have to form the right coalitions. I think, yeah. you know, for example, for example, right now, if uh, for those of us who are who you know may not have chosen Joe Biden as our number one pick, uh, we have to realize that, like it or not, it's going to be a, it's a binary process, and one of those two people is going to win the election. That's and right. I want to hear I want to hear people telling me that there's no difference between the two because I could sit here and give you twenty five quick reasons that major quick, reasons why there's a difference quick. between the two. So, and major, you know, yeah. you know, and so, um, so I think that's the kind of thinking we have to have. And, and we do have to, as much as possible, take everything that's happening very seriously, but to try to keep looking to the future as, uh, as Dr. Cole says, onward, always, always to the future, because that's, that's what motivates us and, and, you know, not get too distracted by these, these efforts to pull people away from what's going on. And we didn't even talk about COVID and, mm-hmm. and how that's, mm-hmm. that's impacting mm-hmm. people as well. Mm-hmm. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. And on any given day, I can have many different emotions about it. Mm-hmm. But I'm encouraged because of the passion of young people and people of all ages, 
Um, and I remembered that that passion, that same passion was there in the 60s. And being a baby boomer, I know we had it. Oh, yeah, I remember. Um, I was there. So passion alone obviously doesn't do it. Um, we need the passion because that's yeah. the fuel. That's the fuel. Yeah. But I do believe that the vehicle that is fueled by uh, the passion is the systems. So back to that again. And I think one of the major differences is social media, people know, and we're talking back and forth globally, which we weren't able to do in the 60s. And so even a lot of stuff that people were doing in different parts of our nation, people didn't know about until days or weeks or months later, because we just didn't have the technology. Mm -hmm. But now people are talking and with doing research and looking at creating systems that dismantle and replace the current system. That is why I'm encouraged. Not the passion alone. Passion mm-hmm. doesn't change a thing. It is the systems and the policies, procedures, etc., laws that are yeah. changed in the system. And that gets us to our destination. That is the thing, aside from God and love, and aside from that, that's right. the practical Peace stuff. On. Peace songs only. We we learned in the sixties. Peace songs only take you, but so far. But, but this is the word. This That's is right. why this 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 brilliant um, work that uh, Ibram Kendi, for example, is writing yes. about in his books and, and and others. This what we're calling anti-racist work. And what what we're calling anti-racism work is is to say. You know, if we have a system that's not working for people, and by the way, I, before I even go there, I want to say something really clearly. I'm not talking about conservatives now, necessarily. I mean, yes, there are some conservatives who tend to lean towards white supremacy or towards uh, or towards um, you know, sustaining a, a racial system that we're in. But I know and have met over the years a lot of conservatives who have very positive attitudes around diversity and race and the like. They just believe there are other ways to get there, and I respect that, and, I've, and I have friendships with people like that. That's a, that's a whole different conversation than than what Trumpism is about. Trumpism yeah. is not about conservatives. It's there's nothing conservative about it, other than he conveniently supports some conservative causes to keep his base intact. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about a system of, of whiteness and and mm-hmm. the glorification mm-hmm. of whiteness. You know, mm-hmm. so 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 having said that, you know, we look at the, these structures and we say, okay, what Kendi's saying is, if you've got a system that benefits one group versus another by on racial terms. And it's undeniable. Anybody who looks at any data sees that this system benefits white people versus black people. You could see it in statistics about every area of life, home ownership, like I said, education, healthcare. I mean, you name it, you know, white people are here and black people are here for the most yep. part. Um, for in most of this and, and so the more you, position, and the more position power and riches you have, yes, the better course. you are within because there's the caste system within white people. Yes, that's right. And of course, and of course, there are exceptions to this rule. There are some black people who have been very successful. But we saw when when Obama was elected and everybody said, oh, we're in a post-racial society. We saw how well that worked out. Right. So. Yeah, right, so right. Um, so so that that system exists. Now, if that system exists and is doing harm to people, which it clearly is, and the data shows that it's doing harm to people. And all you do is say, well, I, I, I'm not I'm not part of that system. I'm not doing anything in that system. Um the system still maintains itself. You're That's still supporting right. the status quo by doing nothing. Right. It's like that old quote, you know, you're either part of the solution or part of the problem. Exactly. Um, it's very much like the metaphor I like to use is it's like my next door neighbor's house is burning and um, the police come and or the fire department finally comes and say, why didn't you call the fire department? You had to see this before. And I said, well, I didn't set the fire. 
you know? Well, you'd say, well, you know, the Good Samaritan laws might even get find you, you know, in trouble for doing that because, because you know, we have a responsibility to do more than just say, I was a guard of the pro. We see a house burning, we've got a responsibility to call 911 to see if we can help as much as possible to save our fellow people. And, and, and I see what, what's been called anti racism work in the same way, which is, you know, we're responsible for looking for ways to dismantle that system. Now, now that can be sometimes in our interpersonal relationships. Um, making a point to make sure your neighbors are welcome in your own community or people in, you know, who you work with, uh, understand that they're respected and treated well and equally. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're, if you're the leader of a company, making sure salaries are equitable and all those kinds of things. And on a societal level, it's important to do the same thing, to study each of our systems and to see what are the ways that that potentially without us realizing it, and this is where bias comes in because bias becomes like the connective tissue of the system you know, in a way, um, to come in and say, how is this affecting people? And if we see, for example, we look at an education system and we see the results that it's producing, then we have to go back and say, well, the, we're not satisfied with the results it's producing because it's inconsistent with the American dream. Um, how about if we go back and look at that system and see if there's anything in that system that may be, without us realizing it, continuing to produce those results and change those parts of that system to make it work. And that's what, what being anti-racist is about is that's what, that's what systems initiation is about. And so, and that's what people, that's what people are calling for. And, um, and you know, that look, there, there are also, we have to acknowledge excesses by people on the left who, who, you know, um, go from one extreme to the other. You know, I got people telling me now that white people shouldn't do diversity training. It's like we've gone from one extreme to the other. Um, you know, I mean, I've I heard look, that I, not only white people but men. Stop it! That's right. right now. That's right. I well, mean, look, my attitude. My attitude is, you know, you're entitled to your opinion. If people call me and want to listen to me, I'll talk. You know, if they don't, I won't. I mean, I'm <laughs> not. You know, I'm not going to tell people what to do. But, but, um, but I think that we we do sometimes get into vindictiveness as opposed to really keeping our move forward. And that's why I think I think we always have to keep our eye on the future. What's the society, um, the beloved community, as Dr. King called it, that that um, or the great society, as, as Linda Johnson called it, that we're trying to create together and how do we get there? So I agree with you. And as we're we're ending and this has been a fast interview. I was going to say, how are we I possibly know, right? at the end already? I feel like we're just getting started. Um, but yes, I agree with you. We have to have one eye on the future. And I think we have the have to have the other eye looking really introspectively at ourselves as individuals. Um, A couple of times I've heard you say the American dream and and it's wonderful, but the reality is the American dream is an American nightmare for many of our people. So we have to wake up and um, plant the seeds so that when we go to sleep, we can all have a part in that dream. Howard, I thank you for this conversation and all the work that you're doing. And don't listen to these fools talk about you don't need to be doing this work. Okay. I'm just, (laughs) I'll pray for them. I'll pray for them. Mm -hmm. But I'm hugging you because Howard, let me tell you, there's a hug in your future if you want one. Hey, you you know, anytime. As soon as I can't wait till we can get together again physically, and um, well, I can't wait till anybody get together again physically. I know, I mean, right? <laughs> this is such a crazy time. But thank, but you know, thank heavens, thank heavens, we we have this this kind of um, technology now. Because imagine what it must have been like in 1918 when people were going through the same thing, and they were like truly isolated. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have Zoom. Miserable. Um, Miserable. They were truly isolated. And and thank God, at least we have this. We can stay connected with people that we love, like you. So. I know. Thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoy and thank you. And yeah, take that with you. Bye-bye, Howard. Bye-bye, dear.
I could not believe how quickly that time went by. How about you? Here are some delicious takeaways from this episode with Howard Ross. You know what? Everybody has bias. So let's not make that the focus and the only thing that we're looking at in these times of racism and other negative isms. We need to look at the system that was constructed and is maintained to promote and care for, take care of and benefit the people who actually started it. Those people, as you've heard me say before, are white, middle-aged, Protestant men who say they're white. It was written, designed by them, for them, and not anybody else. Anybody else who's benefiting from it just so happens that you are. And if you're white, they're like, okay, you can, we'll let you have a little benefit. Occasionally, other people of color, but they make excuses for those people and say, well, they had an unfair advantage or they'll somehow minimize it. The American dream that was perpetuated by these same people who created the system is in reality an American nightmare for the majority of us because that includes even white women who have to be awakened sometimes screaming in the night about the rights that men, some men, don't want them to have. Whether we're having the American dream or the American nightmare, we need to wake up, honey, because we have some ugly stuff going on. And you know what? We can all be encouraged because of this buzz that's going on. We've not had a buzz this mighty since the 1960s, but it's even mightier because of social media and all of the technology that we have. And because of this buzz and young people and other people too, but mainly young people saying enough is enough. We're going to do something about it. And the fact that they're demanding that the truth be told, that the delicious truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the whole truth be told. So help me God and everybody else who wants to get involved. They're saying we have to take some action to dismantle and replace this system that's causing so much harm and angst while some people are laughing all the way to the bank that they own, by the way. So, um, you know what? Here's just another encouragement and some how-tos and things to keep in mind. So glad that we have allies like Howard who will talk with us and help show us the way. Show me the way to get home. (laughs) I love this, and I hope you love it too. And until we meet again, you know what? There is a hug or two in your future if you want them.